Take your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You know, I am reminded this morning of how blessed we really are. Even as we have heard our choir sing, as they have led us in worship, how blessed we are as a people and as a church. And last week, as we opened this letter to the Corinthians, we saw how that church had been blessed in so many different ways. Paul had given thanksgiving time and time again for the Corinthian church and how they had experienced the grace of God and the gifts of God and even God himself being in their midst. What a blessing that was. And we certainly have been blessed as well. And you know, sometimes when we're so blessed, we have to be careful because we find ourselves wanting to brag upon those blessings, right? Have you ever been there? Yeah, no, you've never bragged on anything before, have you? After this service, we'll have a Sunday school hour. Is it okay, Loy, if we'll just have a group Sunday school hour of those who would just like to brag on their grandchildren? Let's just do that this morning and see if we wouldn't have a full group of individuals in the fellowship hall this morning with our college students. They would like to share about their grandchildren. You like to brag. There are times in our lives we love to tell people of the good and great things that have happened in our lives. And again, many of us, we have true blessings. We have those things that we can think about and we can talk about in our lives. As I prepared for this message this week, I, I, I thought to myself, you know, Reggie, what are you blessed with? I am blessed with so many things. So many things. Somebody reminded me, and I'm always thankful for church members who remind me of my blessing. But last week, somebody reminded me that I married up in life. <laughs> See? I had a feeling I'd get some uh, confirmation this morning. But yes, last week, last Sunday night, somebody had seen Leslie and talked with her. And they saw me this week. And they said, you know, you married up in life. And I said, absolutely. I'm not dumb. <laughs> married up in life. Intelligent. Beautiful. Uh, Dr. Fred Lowry or Fred Luter, that is, he used to say that um, his wife was the apple of his eye, the main thing, the sweet thing, the, the prime rib, right? And that's my wife. And also she's kind. She's going to forgive me after this. She has to because I've said that in front of everybody. I'm blessed with a wife. I'm blessed with great children, great-looking children, smart children. They smell good after you give them baths. They... They're mildly obedient. I love my children. They're great children that I have. And then the blessing of being a part of the family of God here at Temple and experiencing worship and enjoying the people here at Temple. You know, the first time, you may not know this, but the first time I mentioned a lemon icebox pie from this pulpit, I received 12 that week. <laughs> I am not kidding. 12 that week. Great people, wonderful people. Just keep it coming. Just keep it coming. <laughs> There's so many things that we could brag about. I could take you into my office and show you different degrees that God's allowed me to get. I could show you some trophy deer on the wall that God has allowed me to get. I could tell you about an Ole Miss football No, never mind. That's not something to brag about this week. The Ole Miss football team, that is. But there are all kinds of things that we could brag about. And that's what the church at Corinth had found themselves doing. 
They recognized how blessed they were. They recognized the grace. They recognized the gifts that they had. And before you know it, they began bragging about all those things. And their bragging and their boasting had actually led to the disunity of the church. Before you know it, the good things, the blessings that God had given had actually turned into points of difference and disunity within the church at Corinth. So what did Paul do? Well, Paul looked at them here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and he basically said, Church, let's brag on God. Let's brag on Christ. In verse 29, he said that no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him who are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Paul said one of the best things you can do to overcome your personal biases, your the disunity that is affecting the church is for you to come together and for you to boast, for you to brag, for you to glory in the Lord. And I want you to see, he actually develops this argument. He develops why we should glory in him. He develops this reasoning of why we should brag upon Christ. Back in verse 18, as he is writing them, he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God for it is written I will destroy the wisdom of the, of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent where is the wise where is the scribe where is the disputer of this age has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world for since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe for Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. He says one of the reasons that we ought to glory in the Lord and brag about Him is because His wisdom is greater than than our wisdom his wisdom is greater than our wisdom now we went through months we went through several sundays talking about the wisdom of god as we studied the book of proverbs and we saw how certainly god's wisdom informs our lives but here paul as he speaks about the wisdom of god he couches it he places it in the context of the christ event who jesus christ is and what he did on our behalf and he says that god's wisdom is so much greater than ours god's wisdom led to an unexplainable plan an unexplainable plan notice what he says as he writes this he says basically god set forth this plan in jesus christ to bring salvation to believers, to those who would trust him. And this plan, it doesn't make sense to those who are perishing. Notice that is in the present tense. Those who go on experiencing destruction and they are perishing in their lives, it doesn't make sense to them. Wisdom cannot begin to explain this great plan that God had for Christ Jesus, not the wisdom of man. 
It's unexplainable. You can't begin to try to describe it in human terms. He says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Foolishness. In the original language, that word is Maria. It's the idea where we get the word moron from today. It is the foolishness to those people who are perishing. They can't understand that. I mean, think about it. That the God of the universe loved you and he loved me and he loved the world so much that he sent his one and only son, Christ, to die on our behalf. For those who have not trusted him, for those who have not believed in him, you cannot explain that plan in some human terms. It doesn't make sense. Especially for those, again, who are perishing. For those that call themselves Jews, for those that call themselves Greek, and they have not believed in this God, it does not make sense. But God's wisdom is greater than my wisdom. And God's plan is greater than my plan. Notice it says in verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who are believed. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. Stop there for a moment. Understand, for the unbelieving Jew, they expected that the Messiah would appear and that there would be this great spectacle. There would be great things happen, and everybody would be confirmed. Everybody would know that this was the Messiah. This was the Christ. They'd been waiting all this time. They had expected this person to come and lead them into some anti-Roman utopia. That's what they expected. That's what they believed. They wanted to see the spectacular and the sensational. Remember, in Jesus' ministry, in Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 and 39, you see where the Pharisees and the scribes come to Jesus. And remember, they asked for a sign. Just do something, Jesus. Just, just do something to demonstrate your Messiahship to us. Now, how much had Jesus already done? What about the miracles that had already been accomplished in Jesus' ministry? But they wanted something else. They wanted something so sensational, something so spectacular. They wanted Jesus to prove himself through the miracles, through the sensational acts and events of an entertainer. So they said, we want you to perform a sign. Remember what Jesus said? It is an evil and adulterous generation that seeks after a sign. In other words, if you're just caught up on the spectacular, if you're just caught up on the power, it, it, you are missing the point of the Messiahship that I've come to bring. You see, I think this is the great temptation that you find in Matthew 4. Remember when Satan comes and places these temptations before Jesus and one of the temptations it says that he takes him to the pinnacle of the temple. Remember? And Satan says, cast yourself down. Because it is written, Satan knows his Bible, by the way. He says, because it is written that all of these angels will come and save you and that you will not harm yourself in any way. Think of that temptation a moment. 
How did that temptation speak to Christ? What was that temptation? I mean, for many of us here, we wouldn't even begin to think it would be a temptation to jump off the church roof, right? That wouldn't be a temptation. Some of the guys have been showing me around the church, and I'm trying to find out all these different places. About three or four months ago, some of the staff took me up to the uh, steeple up here. That is, I got close. I would not make that final trek all the way up. I can climb in a deer stand, but I can't climb any other places, you know? Don't like heights whatsoever. It wouldn't be tempting for us to just jump off. And you think to yourself, why would, Jesus, why would this be a temptation for Jesus? Because of this. Look, if Jesus had jumped off and God had honored his word, which he would have, and God would have sent angels and they would have protected him, everybody would have seen this sensational, spectacular event and perhaps anointed him that moment, at that time, the Messiah, the Christ. In essence, Satan was tempting Jesus to skip the cross. To skip the cross. Take it through the sensational. Take it through the spectacular. Become the Messiah that the Jews want you to be. And yet that was not God's plan. You see, God's wisdom was so much greater than their wisdom and so much greater than my wisdom. Christ did not come, he had not come to be the sensational and spectacular Messiah. He had come to be the suffering Messiah. He said here in verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. For the Jews, it was so hard to understand, especially those who had not come to believe. It violated their expectations, it violated their wisdom. The Greeks... The Greeks who prided themselves on wisdom, the Sophia wisdom of the New Testament, they, they, they believed in philosophy and so many other things and they couldn't figure out why God would send his only son to die on the cross. It violated the Jewish wisdom. It violated the Greek wisdom. It did not make sense to those who had not believed. As a matter of fact, in verse 23, it says, to the Jews it became a stumbling block. The original word there is the word that gives us our word today of scandal. It was the scandal on. It was the stumbling block. It was the offense for stumbling. In other words, the Jews could not get past it. Those who could not believe, they could not get past that God would send the Messiah in such a way. May I just stop a moment and say to you, we, may, we must be very careful in allowing our expectations to miss God's work in our lives. We think we have God figured out and this is exactly the way he's going to do things and exactly the way he's going to work in our lives. And then God violates our wisdom. He violates our expectations. And he does it for his good and for his glory. And here, he violates their expectations. He violates their wisdom. The Greeks, again, the Greeks considered it foolishness. Again, that same word that I mentioned a moment ago. 
foolishness that God would do such things. Verse 24, but to those who are called, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because look, his plan, his wisdom is so much greater than ours. We may not, from a human perspective, be able to truly grasp it as far as God coming forth with this plan to send Jesus to die. I mean, even for the Jews, it was a stumbling block, as I mentioned. Christ crucified. Gordon Fee reminds us that that terminology in and of itself, that terminology in and of itself is contradictory. Christ crucified. No, Christ was going to be the one to bring power and glory. Christ crucified. The Messiah die a criminal death upon the cross. That makes absolutely no sense. And yet, in the unexplainable plan of God, Christ Jesus became the wisdom and the power for us. To those who have been called, to those of us who have believed, now we can truly see the majesty of the plan. The majesty of the plan that God would grant to us such forgiveness. It was an unexplainable plan. It was an unexplainable proclamation. Again, what did God choose according to what the scripture says? God chose the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Even that violates our wisdom. I mean, if God wanted to establish his kingdom, or perhaps let's say it this way, if you or I wanted to establish our kingdoms, we probably would not rely upon a bunch of preachers and ministers and witnesses, right? You probably wouldn't do that. Come on, you're being nice to me. But you would not. You might find some type of uh, financial advisor that could help you establish a kingdom. If you're trying to establish some type of military kingdom, you would go and you would consult those people that knew about strategy, military strategy. You, you do all those kinds of things. And here's the Messiah. Who, here's the Christ. He's going to establish his kingdom. And instead of calling forth the angels, and instead of building a military army or investing in political power, what does he do? He is going to establish his kingdom through the preaching of the message of the cross. And that's going to seem foolish to people. How in the world could that happen? But his wisdom is greater than mine. Paul says, I'm going to glory in him. I am going to brag upon Christ because his wisdom is greater than mine. And then he says, I'm going to brag upon him. I'm going to boast in him because his power is greater than mine. Note in verse 25, it says, the weakness of God is stronger than men. Even, even in that weakness, if you even clarify it as weakness, he says, it is so much more than who we are as humanity, he says. Notice verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. 
But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. He says basically the power of God is so much more than ours that what God does through his power is produce unlikely candidates to make a difference for the kingdom. He produces unlikely candidates. He looks around at this church and he says, you know, not many of you, not many of you could speak about all of your material blessing. He says, you're not necessarily, you haven't been wise according to the flesh. You haven't been mighty. You've not necessarily been noble. In other words, you... You haven't come from the richest or perhaps the most affluent classes. Now, not to say that there were not some people of means in this church. According to 1 Corinthians 11, as you look at the Lord's Supper and see his debate and argument around it, you'll recognize there were those who were blessed materially. Crispus, Gaius, perhaps. Others in the church that were. But what he says is, when I look at this church collectively, not, not many of you just had great resumes not many of you were born into the right family. He says, literally, that word many noble means that you didn't come necessarily by birth from great lineages. Perhaps they were born in Arkansas or something like that, perhaps. Just kidding. I just remembered I'm closer to Arkansas than I used to be. I got to work on those things. You didn't have all those resume things. You didn't have all of the diplomas. You didn't have all of this, he said. And yet the power of God worked in your life. And he produced unlikely candidates to make a difference for God. Because God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put shame the wise. Isn't this always the God we serve that he seems to choose the unlikeliest of candidates to become his heroes to make a difference for the kingdom. Read the Old, read the New Testament. How many times did God intervene in that barren wife's life in order to produce a child? How many times did God take those who are not eloquent like Moses or the fearful like Gideon and God say, I am going to use you? For my glory. For my goodness. How many times has God done that? Now I know that some of us. God is blessed in many ways. Even from being children all the way up. But I think to myself. How blessed I am. That God has chosen. The weakest that God has chosen the most foolish things this world would determine and he would use those things. I think back to my own humble beginnings, Birmingham Ridge Road. You know where that is? Around Sautilla, Mississippi. Growing up in Birmingham Ridge Baptist Church, we would probably have Maybe a tenth to two-tenths of the attendance that we'll have today. 
I remember listening to my preacher preach each week. I remember sitting on that pew. I remember singing those hymns. Never to imagine that God would bless and work in my life and give me the great privilege to be able to stand in this pulpit as I do today. Because God chooses the most unlikely of candidates. And I am so thankful and so reminded of the grace he has offered to us and he has allowed us to experience because his power is greater than mine. His power is greater than yours. He takes the weakest. He takes the most unlikely candidates. And listen to me, the power of God takes the most unlikely candidates and produces the most unlikely consequences. He says that no flesh should glory in his presence. In verse 30 that we read a moment ago, but of him who are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He took the unlikeliest candidates and what did he produce within them? The unlikeliest consequences of righteousness, sanctification, redemption. He took those many who perhaps were outcast. And what God did in their lives is he worked in such a way to redeem them, to provide for them righteousness. Think, here we are. So many thousand miles from the birth of our Lord. So many thousand miles from the birth of the Christian message itself. And yet, he has chosen those of us who are unlikely candidates. And what has he produced in us? What he has granted us? Redemption and righteousness. We have not produced it on our own, yet it is Christ Jesus working through us and in us through his power and his strength. Let us glory in the Lord. Let us boast of him. Let us brag of him for what he has done. For finally, as I see Paul lay out his argument, Paul says that his story, his story is greater than mine. Notice in verse 1 of that second chapter, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You see, I love to be able to share about my life and who I am. And I know you like to be able to do that and the personal nature of it. But in the end, it's his story that is greater than our story. It's not for us just to tell about the things of our lives. Sunday morning would be so empty if I were just to come and tell you stories from my life this week. Leslie will tell you, it would be pretty boring. But oh, what power and oh, what strength when you're able to come together and talk about his story. His story. He said, that is the reason I will preach Christ and Christ crucified because his story is so much better than my story, he says. Christ 
and him crucified. Now certainly, we preach the whole counsel of God and Paul embraced that. We see that in the book of Acts. But what he says is, in that every instance of our life, in every family relationship, in every work relationship, in everything that we are and in everything that we do, he says, somehow Christ and his story should inform us and speak to us. How does the Christ and the crucifixion impact my job? How does Christ and the crucifixion impact my, my relationship with my wife and my children? It should inform us because it is his story that is greater than mine. It is the unique message. There's no other message like it. Search the world. Yes, you'll find religious stories. You'll find individuals. But you'll never find one like this. That the God of all eternity, the God of the universe, sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die for you and to die for me. To pay the penalty of sin so that we would not have to face a devil's hell. But we would be able to experience eternal life through Jesus Christ. There is no other story like that story. There is no other story. It is a unique, one-of-a-kind, significant story for our lives. And it comes in such a unique manner, that story. Notice Paul said, I came to you, but did not come with excellence of speech or wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. Paul was not downplaying wisdom. He was not downplaying here any idea of trying to relate to the people and speak to them on their level. We know in the book of Acts he uses rhetoric, he uses other issues, but notice he says, that is not how I came to you. That was not the primary purpose of trying to manipulate you or flatter you in the gospel. Rather, verse 3, he says, I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. Perhaps he's mentioning here that thorn in the flesh he had. It could have been physical, it could have been spiritual, but he said, I came to you in weakness. Verse 4, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasion, persuasive words of human wisdom but in demonstration of the spirit and of power did you get that he said i did not come just simply to persuade you by manipulative words you know what i have learned is that if i can talk you into something somebody else can talk you out of that something and while, yes, I come to make an argument and I reason and I bring the gospel of Christ, I recognize that this morning, as every Sunday morning, that your response should not be based upon just the persuasive words that I bring. But rather, your response should be measured as the power of God works in your life and uses those words to effect transformation and change why verse 5 that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men but in the power of God that your faith your belief it is not based upon men or the wisdom of men but it is based upon the power of God I am so thankful for my pastor when I was growing up that stood in the pulpit and preached the gospel and told me that the only way to be saved and the only way to go to heaven and the only way 
to experience a relationship with Christ is to come by faith and trust and just surrender myself to Him. I'm thankful He said those words. But I am thankful that God just didn't leave those words hanging out there. But God took those words and He placed them in my heart. And through the power of conviction and the power of the Holy Spirit, I came to salvation in Him. Because when the Spirit comes and He births you into His family, it is an unforgettable experience. It is an experience that will change you for all eternity. Paul says his story is greater than mine in the unique message and in the unique manner in which it comes. The story of Christ. (laughs) So, let's glory in the Lord. Let's brag on Him. Let's boast in Him. Why? Because His wisdom is greater than mine. His power is greater than mine. His story is greater than mine. If He is so much greater than I am, may I boast in Him and His work. That song that we were singing a few moments ago, In the Cross, In the Cross, Be My Glory Ever. Till my ransom soul shall find rest beyond the river. May it be in Christ. May it be in the cross that we glory even this day. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for sending your one and only son for us. For violating human wisdom. For rejecting sensationalism. Thank you for sending us the Messiah that we desperately needed. Father, thank you for the plan that you had in place for Christ to die for us and to provide for us eternal life and salvation and father this morning in this place perhaps there are those Lord that they don't understand still because they find themselves in that present reality of perishing God I pray that today they would come and they would give their lives to you and they would experience the power of God your power in their lives. Father, for those of us that are so tempted to boast and to brag and, Lord, to look at all the things that we've accomplished for the kingdom, would you humble us today? And would you help us to come back to that simple message, to that simple person of Christ Jesus? God, work now in your own way Through the power of your Holy Spirit, through this invitation, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand this morning?